Volume One, Part Two, Chapter One of War and Peace. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne Spiegel. War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. Volume One, Part Two, 1805, Chapter One. In October 1805, the Russian army were cantoned in certain villages and towns in the Archduchy of Austria, making a heavy burden for the inhabitants, and still new regiments were on the way from Russia, and concentrating around the fortress of Brunau, where Kutuzov, the commander-in-chief, had his headquarters. On the 23rd of October, one of the many regiments of infantry that had just arrived stopped about a half-mile from the city, awaiting to be reviewed by the commander-in-chief. Notwithstanding the un-Russian landscape, orchards, stone walls, tiled roofs, and mountains on the horizon, and the un-Russian aspect of the people, who gathered to look with curiosity at the soldiers, this regiment presented exactly the same appearance as every other Russian regiment getting ready for inspection anywhere in the center of Russia. The evening before, during their last march, Word had been received that the commander-in-chief would review the regiment. The words of the order had not seemed altogether clear to the regimental commander, and the question having arisen, how it was to be taken, were they to be marching in order or not, he called a council of officers, at which it was decided that the regiment should be presented in parade dress, on the principle that it is always better to go beyond than not come up to the requirements. And the soldiers, after a march of three hundred verse, during which they had not once closed their eyes, were kept all night mending and cleaning up. The aides and captains classified and enrolled their men, and by morning the regiment, instead of a straggling, disorderly mob, such as it had been during the last stage of their march, presented a compact mass of two thousand men, each one of whom knew his place and his duty. Every button and every strap were in order." and shining with neatness. Not only were all the externals put in perfect order, but if the commander-in-chief should take it into his head to look under the uniforms, then he would have found that each man had on a clean shirt, and that in each knapsack were the required number of things, shiltsi imiltsi, all and soap, as the soldiers express it. There was only one particular in regard to which no one could be satisfied. This was footwear, the shoes of more than half of the men were in tatters. But this lack was not the fault of the regimental commander, since, notwithstanding his repeated demands, the necessary goods had not been furnished by the Austrian commissariat, and, moreover, the regiment had marched a thousand verse. The regimental commander was an elderly general, of sanguine complexion, with grey brows and side whiskers, stout and broad, the distance from his chest to his back was greater than across his shoulders. He wore a brand new uniform, which showed the creases caused by having been folded, and on his shoulders were heavy gold epaulets, which raised his fat shoulders still higher. The regimental commander had the aspect of a man who had happily accomplished one of the most important functions of life. He marched up and down in front of the line, and as he marched he shook at every step, slightly bending his back. It could be seen that the regimental commander was very fond of his regiment, 
and felt happy at the idea that all his mental faculties were absorbed in it. But, nevertheless, his pompous gait seemed to insinuate that over and above his military interests there was still left no small room in his heart for the affairs of society and the feminine sex. "'Well, Batushka, Mikhailo Miltrich,' said he, turning to one of the majors who stepped forward with a smile. It was evident that all were happy. We had a pretty tough tussle last night, didn't we? However, according to my idea, our regiment isn't one of the worst, eh? The major appreciated the jocund irony and laughed. No, we should not be driven off from the Empress's field. What is it? asked the commander, catching sight of two horsemen galloping along the road to the city, lined with signalmen. It was an adjutant, with a Cossack riding behind him. The adjutant had been sent from headquarters to explain what had been enigmatical in the last evening's order, and especially to insist upon it that the commander-in-chief wished to review the regiment in exactly the condition in which it had arrived, in cloaks, gun-covers, and without any preparations whatever. The evening before, it had happened that a member of the Hofkriegsrath had arrived from Vienna, asking and urging that Kutuzov should make all haste to join the Allied armies under the Archduke Ferdinand and General Mack, and Kutuzov, considering that this junction was not advantageous, desired to exhibit in support of his own theories, and to have the Austrian general see for himself the pitiable state in which the army of Russia had arrived. With this end in view, he was anxious to find the regiment in marching order, and therefore the worse the situation of the men, the more agreeable it would be to him. The adjutant knew nothing about these reasons, but he transmitted to the regimental commander the general-in-chief's urgent desire that the men should be in marching order, and added that if it were otherwise the commander-in-chief would be very much offended. On hearing these words, the regimental commander hung his head, silently shrugged his shoulders, and spread his hands with a despairing gesture. "'This is great doings,' he cried. "'It's what I told you, Mikhailo Mitrich, in marching order, in cloaks,' said he, turning reproachfully to the major. "'Ah, my God!' he exclaimed, and stepped resolutely forward. "'Gentlemen! Captains!' he cried, in a voice accustomed to command. "'Sergeants! Will they be here soon?' he asked." turning to the adjutant with an expression of deferential politeness, evidently proportioned to the dignity of the personage of whom he was speaking. Within an hour, I think. Shall we have time to make the change? I don't know, General. The regimental commander, hastening into the ranks, made the dispositions for changing back into marching costume again. The captains ran to their companies, the sergeants bustled about, the cloaks were not altogether in order and in an instant the solid squares which had just been standing silently and orderly stirred, stretched out, and began to buzz with busy voices. Soldiers were running this way and that, getting their knapsacks on their shoulders and over their heads, taking down their cloaks and lifting their arms high in the air, trying to get them into their sleeves. Within half an hour the whole regiment was in the same order as before, only the squares were transformed from black to gray. The regimental commander was again walking up and down in front of the regiment, with the same tottering gait and inspecting it from a distance. "'What does that mean? What is that?' he cried, suddenly halting. "'Captain of the third company!' 
The general wants the captain of the third company. The general wants the third captain. The general wants the third company, cried various voices along the ranks, and an aide hastened to discover the missing officer. Even while the sounds of gruff voices commingling, and some even crying the company wants the general, rang along the lines, the missing officer appeared from behind his company, and although he was well on in years, and not used to running, he came toward the general at an awkward dog-trot on his tiptoes. The captain's face expressed such anxiety as a schoolboy feels when he is called upon to recite a lesson that has not been learned. His nose was red and covered with blotches, evidently caused by intemperance, and his mouth twitched nervously. The regimental commander surveyed the delinquent captain from head to foot as he came up panting, and slackened his pace as he approached. "'Do you let your men wear women's seraphans? What does that mean?' cried the regimental commander, thrusting out his lower jaw, and pointing to a soldier in the ranks of the third company, who wore a coloured capote of broadcloth in violent contrast with the cloaks of the other soldiers. "'Where have you been? The commander-in-chief is expected, and here you are out of your place, eh?' I will teach you to dress your men in Cossack coats for review. Hey! The captain, not taking his eyes from his chief, kept his two fingers at his visor, as though he found his salvation now in this one position alone. Well, why don't you speak? Whom have you there, in that Hungarian costume? sternly demanded the regimental commander, with grim fastidiousness. Your Excellency— well, what of your excellency? Your excellency, and your excellency. But what does... What do you mean by your excellency? Nobody knows what you mean. Your excellency, that is Dolokhov, cashiered, stammered the captain. Well, was he cashiered to be a field marshal or a private? If as a private, then he ought to be dressed like the others, in uniform. Your excellency... You yourself allowed him to dress so on the march. Allowed him? Allowed him? That's always the way with you young men, said the general, cooling down a little. Allowed him? We tell you one thing and you... The general paused. We tell you one thing and you... Well, he said with a fresh access of temper, be good enough to have your men dress decently and the regimental commander glanced at the adjutant and proceeded along the line with his faltering gait. It could be seen that his outburst of temper had given him great satisfaction, and that as he passed along the line he wanted to find some excuse for further violence. Berating one officer for not having a clean gorget, and another for having his company dressed unevenly, he proceeded to Company 3. "'How are you standing? Where is your leg?' "'Your leg! Where is it?' screamed the regimental commander, with a suggestion of keen suffering in his voice, passing by half a dozen men to come to Dolokhov, who was dressed in a bluish capote. Dolokhov slowly straightened his bended leg, and, with his keen, bold eyes, stared into the general's face. "'Why is that blue capote? Off with it! Sergeant, strip him! The blun—' He did not have time to finish.' "'General, I am bound to fulfill orders, but I am not bound to put up,' began Dolokhov hastily. "'No talking in the ranks! No talking! No talking!' 
I am not bound to put up with insults, cried Dolokhov in a loud ringing voice. The eyes of the general and the private met. The general said no more, but angrily pulled down his tight belt. Have the goodness to change your coat, I beg of you, said he, as he turned away. End of chapter 1